As we continue in our series, Alpha and Omega, God from beginning to end, going to be in Genesis chapter, most of our time will be spent in Genesis chapter 8 today. Genesis chapter 8, I'd encourage you to go ahead and flip your Bible open to Genesis chapter 8. We're going to start in verse 20 once we jump into it. But, but just, just to set the stage from the point of Adam and Eve's original disobedience, we looked at the covenant with creation last week from the point of that original disobedience in which they failed in upholding or living in the covenant that God had made with them, we begin to see God's promise of redemption begin to unfold. It's, it's, it's a plan that was set in place before the foundation of time, before the foundation of the world, but it's now going to be revealed in time. And, and even in the midst of his pronouncing of judgment, uh, in, that, in, in, that, in that time, in Genesis chapter 3, we begin to see him make promises of deliverance, that there's going to be one born of the seed of the woman who is going to destroy the serpent. And Adam and Eve, though spiritually dead and, and sent out from God's presence, sent into exile, would remain alive. They would continue to live in their body. Um, and, and, and so we see this happening. We see this functioning uh, all the way back at the beginning. And then those verses, from those verses moving forward, we see the reign of sin and death and the destruction that comes as a result of it. In the next chapter, we see Cain kill his brother Abel. Death reigns. And then all of the genealogy, every one of these, at every point in, uh, of the genealogy, at every, every life except for one, is punctuated by death. It ends. And they die because death reigns. And so all the way, the sin begins to, to spread across the face of the earth because sinners continue to multiply across the face of the earth. And all the way, we build into the narrative all the way into Genesis 6, and we find out that the progression of sin is complete. Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his hearts was only evil continually. Then just a few verses later, Genesis 6, 11 through 12, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence and God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And then just a few verses later, in spite of the extent of corruption, God says to Noah and his family, Genesis 6, 18, but I will establish my covenant with you. You shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. God determines to bring judgment as he did in the garden. He brings judgment, but there's a ray of hope. As we come to the flood, he brings judgment, but there's a ray of hope, a promise of covenant. So as we continue in, in this view of, of this look at God's covenant in this series, today that's the covenant we're looking at, the one that he's promised he would make with Noah, Noah's wife, Noah's sons, and Noah's sons' wives. God's covenant with Noah. We're going to begin, we're going to really read and, and look at the covenant most closely beginning in Genesis chapter 8, verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and, and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. 
And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall fall upon... Uh, shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require reckoning. From every beast I will require, and, and from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you, your and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds of the livestock and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations." I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And when I bring, when I bring the clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Let's pray. Father, as we consider this covenant, this promise, this ray of hope extending from great, real, true judgment, would you help us? Would you give us rest and peace, confidence and certainty? But the God who is able to flood the world is also able to preserve the world. Would you move on us today, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, to understand the significance of this passage, to, to really get it, we can't just rush out oh, there's a flood and just rush past it, right? We have to understand the significance of the then at, begin, at the beginning of verse 8. Then Noah built an altar. You just consider the circumstances of that then. He and his family, his Him, his wife, his son, and his son's wives are the only people alive on the whole face of the earth. Imagine that. We're we're surprised to hear about a school that's got only eight people in it. This is all of the people on the whole face of the earth. Not only that, the only living beings, the only living creatures, the only animals walking the face of the earth, the only birds flying in the in the sky are those animals that were on the ark with Noah. I don't think it's a far leap. Once you begin to understand that, why Noah steps out and builds an altar of worship and thanksgiving. See, I think sometimes we, we have this image. There, there's a couple of different images that, that, that get in our mind. Um, and, and I think the mo- maybe the most prominent one that when people talk about the ark, maybe this isn't you. Maybe we've said it enough here that it's not really true of our church anymore. But but the, the view of the flood that I think much of the world has is, is those 
little bubble-headed animals with their heads hanging over the rail with smiles on their faces and you know they're bobbing on the ocean in the ark and there's a rainbow that really has no presence no no place being there yet but there's this pleasant feel about it there's this this beauty of it there's this it's so friendly and inviting and we we have no problem hanging it on the Painting it on the sides of our nurseries and hanging it in mobiles over our children's beds. And we got this whitewashed, misunderstanding, this view of veggie tales and floods. I was reminded this week of, a, of an artist named Gustave Doré. I don't even know if I'm saying his right name. I'm not an art aficionado. It's just I've seen these things in the past. I know very little about art. But he's, he's done these engravings, and one is called the Deluge, and it's an image of the, the last remaining peak of a mountain, the highest point of earth, with a man clinging to it as he holds what I believe is his wife in his arm, and the waves are sloshing around them, and there's children on the peak of this mountain. And next to them is a tiger holding a cub and cubs on its feet, and I just couldn't help but imagine even if the floodwaters were to, to stop rising at that point, what's going to happen when that tiger gets hungry? And then another one called uh, something like the flood and the destruction of the earth or something like that. I can't remember exactly the name of it, but it's an image of a, a, a large number of people and and animals clamoring to get to the highest ground possible. And there's images of water rushing in to this space, and and they're trying to get to the highest ground, and in the back you can see the ark floating, the silhouette of an ark floating. And and this one and the other one, every person that's depicted is is naked. And and again, I'm no art person. It's not like I sit and think, ooh, this is what this, but this is what makes me think. As I'm looking at the, the nakedness of man, the, just the openness of the sin and shame and the inability to stand before a holy God. And as dark as these engravings are, I mean, they're, they're, they're dark. And when you look at them, there's, there's a lack of hope. Except in that one, there's an image of the ark, a silhouette of the ark. And I think a better picture of the flood is is, I don't know if you've seen the videos of the tsunamis coming into like India that are wave, just massive wave crashing onto the ground and people running and screaming and the power of water sweeping people away and banging them into whatever happens to be in the way. And Noah and his family and these animals are in the ark. Then... They get out onto dry ground. What's the first thing they're going to do? Worship. Why would, well, I mean, it becomes so natural. It becomes the natural reaction. It becomes the natural response, right? Like, this is the, I'm here. I'm standing here with my family. It's not to say that we despise or ignore the, the great weight of judgment that's just fallen, but what, what am I going to do? I'm going to celebrate that God has, by his grace, delivered me from his wrath. So they go out, and immediately there's a sacrifice made. Don't miss that. 
Animals that were on the ark and lived through the ark become a sacrifice that becomes a pleasing aroma to God in worship of God. Death is still in the world. And this pleasing aroma that we see God's approval and response to you, indicative of a sacrifice that would one day satisfy All of what we're going to look at, as we look at, at, at this covenant, all of it falls as a response. Not that he didn't already plan it. I don't want to make it sound as if, oh, God's reacting and figuring things out as he goes along. That's not the intent. But, but he waits until the sacrifice is offered and the worship is given and he smells the pleasing aroma and he's pleased. And we see him enter into covenant and offer us hope even today. Here's the point that I'm going to seek to to develop for you as we walk through this. God has bound himself in covenant to Noah, his descendants and all living creatures, that he will preserve the earth and life upon the earth as long as the earth remains. God has bound himself in covenant to Noah, his descendants and all living creatures, that he will preserve the earth and life upon the earth as long as the earth remains. We're going to look at it in three different perspective, three different pieces. God's decree in chapter 8, verses 21 through 22. God's blessing in chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Then God's covenant in chapter 9, 8 through 17. Now, all of this is, uh, it, it, it's, it's all part of the covenant. I mean, all of these pieces are informing the others, and they're, they're being uh, established because of those that preceded it. But, but really, that's when he begins to use the, the language of covenant. Before we dig into that, I want to remind you, just real quickly, how we're defining covenant and how we're seeking to establish this and see it lay itself and see itself see it played out through the covenants that we would be studying We've, we're using two one from tom schreiner he defines it this way a, a, a chosen relationship in which two parties make binding promises to each other a chosen relationship in which two parties make binding promises to each other so we should be able to see a relationship today we should we should be able to see binding promises as we look at this today uh, another one we're using, Gentry from Peter Gentry and Stephen Wellam. And both of these, both of these uh, well, Gentry and Wellam and Schreiner, both of these definitions are developed as a result of exhaustive study, exhaustive study of the covenants and the, and the flow of the Bible through the covenants. But Gentry and Wellam write, a relationship between two parties involving permanent and serious commitments of faithful loyal love, obedience, and trust. And so we should be able to identify these relationships, and we should be able to identify the parties and the relationships. And we should be able to see the commitments of faithful, loyal love, and obedience, and trust, or at least the expectation of those. So as we work through the text today, and you think through what we've read, you should already be able to begin to see, oh, wait a minute, okay, I'm beginning to see. But second, let me highlight another thing for you that I think will help you see how this fits in the overall scheme of the Scripture. There are two primary ways that covenants are referenced in the Bible. Uh, the two, two primary ways in which we see them um, entered into. Let's, let me just say it like that. Sometimes you hear God say, I'm going to make covenant with you. In fact, when we get to Abraham, he's going to say, I'm making covenant with you. That's the ESV translation, and same with establish. The other is establish. And, and in fact, here in this text, when we look at it in Genesis chapter 6 and in Genesis chapter 9, where he begins to refer to it, he is speaking of establishing 
covenant. Now, that to our ears sounds like initiations. That sounds like beginning of a work. But in the original language, that's not exactly how it works. There's two ways in which in the original language it's said. Karat berit, cut a covenant. That means like in Abraham, he cuts the animals in half and that they think that that's really where that practice is really what lent itself to saying we're going to make covenant. We're going we're gonna to start a covenant that's fresh, that's never been made before. We're going to cut a covenant. So that's where they think that came from. And the other way is hakim berit, which means uphold a covenant that's translated in the ESV as establish covenant, but it's an upholding. It's not, a, it's not establishing something new. It's affirming something that's already been in place. And let me just read this quote to you. These men are much smarter than I am. I'm no Hebrew scholar. I've taken a few classes. I understand a little bit about the language, but these men uh, have studied it at length. And I just want you to hear this. The, the quote is you can, on, on the screen behind me. You should be able to read along. Nowhere in the flood account do we read of God cutting a covenant. Why is the language different here, and what does it signify? An exhaustive study of all instances of berit in the Hebrew Bible and constructions involving this noun reveals a completely consistent usage inherent in the language. The construction to cut a covenant refers to covenant initiation, while the expression to establish a covenant means to affirm the continued validity of a prior commitment. That is, to affirm that one is still committed to the covenant relationship as established or inherited previously. Now, why do I want you to know that? Why do I, as we step into this and study Noah's co- this covenant with Noah, why, why does it matter? Because I want you to recognize this is not a new covenant. So in the traditional, uh, 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 the, the classically covenantal theological theologians view of the covenants, they, they look at Genesis and Adam and they say that's a covenant of works. And then Noah, all the way to Jesus, is the covenant of grace. And those are all one covenant with with different administrations. And so they're different leaders, Noah, Moses. So so one covenant. But the language doesn't allow for that to be a reality. This is not a new covenant. God created, and from the chaos, he brought the cosmos. And then as a result of man's sin, he He brings the flood and and pushes it back to chaos. And from that chaos, he is now going to establish a second Adam. And with this representative, that's not going to take Adam's place, because we're either in Adam or we're in Christ. We talked about that last week. But as a type of Adam, who's also going to serve as a type of Christ, we can see that across the flow of the New Testament, Noah's going to stand in Adam's place, And hear this promise that God made all the way back at the beginning that he is going to continue to carry out today. So it's important that you recognize this. It's important that we see it because it makes this covenant distinct. It gives it some some, some, uh, 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 uniqueness, but it also demonstrates the continuity between Adam and Noah. There is a greater connection between them and this covenant than with Noah and Christ. And I think, just an opinion, I'll ask him when I get there, I think that's why Paul never said you're either in Adam or Noah, even though all of us can trace our lineage back to Noah. 
But the covenant was originally established. It was not established. It was originally made with Adam. He is the covenant head. Noah just becomes a placeholder or a type, someone who is in that line. So it matters because as we look at this, if, if, we, if, we, if we make this a covenant that's part of the covenant of grace, then we're saying this is a redemptive covenant. It isn't. Can we see some redemption happen? Absolutely. Can we see that Noah is saved, Noah and his family are saved? Absolutely. Is there some picture of that happening? Absolutely. The New Testament shows us that. But more than a covenant of redemption, it is a covenant of preservation. God is preserving his covenant promise. And as he's preserving his covenant promise, he is preserving life and preserving the, uh, the earth on which life will live. God made a promise that he would, through the seed of the woman, conquer the serpent. But there must be offspring and there must be a world in which that redemption is going to take place. And, and our sin will never get in the way of God accomplishing his covenant purposes or his redemptive plan. So he promises he has bound himself in covenant now to Noah and the descendants and Noah's descendants and all living creatures to preserve the earth and life on the earth as long as the earth remains or to say it another way as long as it takes to complete the work of redemption. Now I think you'll see that more as, as we work through the covenants but if I don't establish that now then we'll unintentionally put too much emphasis on this covenant connect it too closely to Christ and miss that greater connection is to Adam. So, all right, it's all part of the, all part of the longer plan. But not, nothing's going to get in the way of God's work, right? And so he decrees this as a, as, a, as a response to worship, as a response to that sacrifice being offered in, to, to his glory. And he, he responds and he decrees. And, and, and it's not a verbal decree at this point. He considers this, the word tells us, that he thinks about it in his heart. Now, this is, this is a metaphorical language. It's giving God attributes that help us understand that God is, God is thinking and considering things, but we don't want to make him too much like us. But even the smelling or the aroma is not necessarily, it's, it's a way for us to understand God at work. And so, so here he is, he sees this, he, he, he responds, and he says to himself, he considers it on his own, Two things that he will never again do. It's ne two negative statements with a very positive reality. I will never again curse the ground because of man. This is his decree. This is his determination. I will never again curse the ground because of man. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. And then with a positive outcome, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. It's somewhat arrogant of us to consider that we can undo what God has promised will last forever, but it's foolish of us not to act as the stewards that he establishes us to be in this covenant. Now, I've summarized this into two pieces, these, this idea into two pieces. First, he's going to preserve the earth, right? So the per first part of the decree is preservation of the earth. I'm not going to destroy it again. God is, is he, he's not going to do to it again. In fact, the language is, I'm not going to curse it again. That's the way it's, it's, it's translated, right? That doesn't mean he's lifting the curse of Genesis 3.17 where he says, cursed is the ground because of you. It's a different word. It has a different connotation. It, it, it means that I'm not going to handle it with contempt or I'm not going to make it, make it um, I, I'm not going to treat it poorly because of you. I'm not going to impose, uh, as one theologian said, I'm not going to impose any further affliction on the already burdened ground because of mankind's sin. 
Because the flood didn't cure sin. Right? It didn't fix anything. We're going to get to, if, if, if you read the narrative, you're going to see Noah sinning, and out of his sin, there's another, another curse laid out. Right? It's clear the flood doesn't cure anything. These people are still sinners. They still are carrying the image of Adam. Their, their sin is, it becomes evident from a very young age. Parents, can I get an amen? Right? Like, it's just the reality. We, we can see it. And just to be fair, I mean, so is yours. <laughs> right? Like, it's not just your kid's sin who becomes evident. Yours did. Yours does. It is. But God's not going to curse the earth. He's not going to hold it in contempt. He's not going to bring any further burden to the ground because of mankind. He's going to preserve it. He's going to preserve the living creatures. See, it isn't just the earth. It's not just the earth he's concerned with. It's also every living thing. Derek Kidner points out that it doesn't abolish disasters. It does localize them so that humanity can overcome them. So, I don't know, you just heard about this probably in the news, the, the earthquake that was in uh, Turkey killed thousands of people, right? It's a massive earthquake, biggest one in the region in, in, in a long, long time, thousands of people dead. Hurricanes hitting the southern coast and, uh, of, of the United States and all these problems that we face, it doesn't mean that these things will never occur, but it localizes them so that humans can overcome them. But God's response is, I'm never going to do anything again that goes against my creative purpose and, and creative initiative. And, and, and then he, it spells out, it, as long as, it, it, let's look back at it again in verse um, 22. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, the, 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 the care and the work that mankind was to be doing, right? God made the earth bountiful. God made it be able to produce fruit, but then he gave mankind to continue to tend to it, take care of it. So there was a planting and a harvesting, a, a time to, to, to open the ground, put the seed in, close the ground, and time to wait for that till the harvest comes. That, that's going to continue. Cold and heat, the seasons are going to continue. The, the seasonal flow of summer and winter Day and night, every day the sun is going to rise and every day the, the sun is going to set and every day the moon is going to continue in its track around the earth and, and we will be, there will be this predictable reality because God is not going to do anything to impose upon that ever again so that the earth will continue and life on the earth can continue. As long as the earth remains, life will be able to live on it. Totally in contradiction to the screams of the, of the hyper-liberal green folks that the sky is falling, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. Now, I will say, just because it's not exactly true, we shouldn't just run with abandon to abuse the earth and not take care of it. We'll still be stewards and managers of the gift God has given us. And sometimes... We would lean into this in arrogance and say, hey, God's going to keep it going. I don't have anything. No, 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 no. You're missing what he's blessed you to do. In fact, that's where we go next. God's blessing. Under God's curse against sin and death, death is still going to reign, right? Mankind's still going to die. There's still going to be death in the world. But after the flood, God says, hey, 
there's always going to be my image bearers. As long as the earth remains, my image bearers will be here. And to some degree, they will enjoy a blessing from me. Not the fullness of blessing as it would have been in the garden. But just imagine, just imagine the grace required here. Right? We looked at the grace that God, had to enter, God used to enter into covenant with mankind at all in the beginning, even in an unfallen state. But now, mankind has fallen. Mankind deserves nothing from God. But yet God says, blessed are you, Noah, and your sons. Multiply and fill the earth. Right? And, and he gives them responsibility again in his new creation. And so I think there's four things that we can see inside of this blessing. Multiplication of life. Be fruitful and multiply. We can see it in chapter uh, 9, verse 1, and in verse 7. It kind of adds, it's kind of bookends to that little section. God blessed Noah and his sons and said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. That's the same exact thing he said to Adam and Eve. And then in verse 7, be fruitful, multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. I'm not going to do anything to inhibit that necessarily. I'm, I'm going to ensure that life can continue to multiply. I'm not going to get in its way. I want you to do that. I'm going to bless you with the ability, the responsibility, the good, thing, the, the, the good blessing of procreation. It's yours. Enjoy it. To fallen, sinful people. That's why, as long as we have been rejecting God, people have still been having kids, raising babies. That's why you don't have to be a believer, to, a, a, a Christian, a, a, a regenerate person, to have children and raise a family. Because this is part of God's blessing on all people. But again, then we see authority for life. And if you think back to the, to the covenant with Adam, there was this, this rule and subdue, this expectation to serve as his representatives and, and, and his reflection as priests and kings. And there's authority for life given here. We see it in verses 2 through 6. It's not stated quite as plainly, but it's there. Fear of you and dread is going to fall on the animals. That means they're going to recognize you over them. You're going to be distinct from them. Again, we're referred to as image bearers. Because if an animal takes our life, or if a person takes our life, life is demanded because we still bear the image of God. Fallen people with a responsibility to serve in the world. That's why we can't just ignore the responsibility to steward the earth that God's given us to live upon. Because we still are His image bearers. We still are His reflection and representation. In some sense, as pitiful and poor as we are at it, as fallen People, as marred as it is, there's still a way in which, and we fail at it, but because of the image of God, there should be a priestly and kingly stewarding of the world in which we live. It's hard to imagine. But he didn't take it away, it wasn't fully removed. He says, I'm going to deliver them into your hand. You have a responsibility. For them, you have authority over them. And then he does another thing that he does in Genesis. Remember in Genesis, he says, I'm going to give you the, all the fruit bearing trees, I'm going to give you the plants, right? You, you can eat. Well, here in verse 3, we have nourishment for life. We have, we have the, um, the, the uh, multiplication of life, the authority of life, and nourishment for life. God doesn't just give them veggies to eat this time. He says, okay, now, now we're going to put meat in your diet. Now, some of you, some of you for, for all kinds of different reasons, are 
on a plant-based diet. And I don't think you're breaking the command by not eating meat. I'm just saying, I think he's, uh, here, here's the problem. Here, here's what I think ends up happening is, is I don't think so much the people in this room. So, so I just want to separate that out just a little bit. But so often what ends up happening is people that begin to eat a plant-based diet become self-righteous in their activity as if they're some way more holy or more acceptable to God. I would just remind anyone who hears someone talking like that, remember what he said to Peter, what I've said is good and clean, don't say it's bad, right? So it's okay to eat meat. It's okay. You can enjoy it. There's reason. If you, if you need to hold off, that's fine. Just don't become religious about it. Don't become a, 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 a vegan to the point that you think, oh, I'm better than everybody else because now God gave us this for our diet. But, but note, this doesn't mean that we're allowed to be savages, doesn't mean that we get to run around. And listen, he says restriction of, he restricts the use of animals with live blood. And so, so you know what? We can't run up and grab a living cow and take a bite out of it. Now, I know that sounds crazy. We never do that, right? But we, we're not allowed. We, we can't just be savage in this. There's a way in which, in, in fact, they're going to be called to drain the blood. The animal should be dead. Now, I don't know all that God intended for this, but as I've thought about this a lot over the last week, last few weeks, I can't help but think, man, we're, he's preserving life on the earth, but for us to continue to live, things have to die. We're surrounded by death. And I don't know if that's God's intent, but he allows it here. But we do not get our life ultimately from the animal. And so he says, says not with their blood in it. You're not gaining life from them in that way, but it will nourish our bodies. And it's okay to do and you'll also note that there's no restriction on clean or unclean. He doesn't say, hey, you can't have pigs, but you can't eat pork, but you can't you, you, you eat lamb and cow, right? He doesn't say any of that. He just says every animal. So in China, when I was there, it was crazy because they would eat anything. Like, I'm not, I'm not trying to be rude. I'm just saying they ate all kind of stuff and, and, and stuff that I'm thinking like, eh, there's no way I'm going to eat that. But I was in the market, uh, well, on several different occasions, but I, I was in the market they got food everywhere, all kinds of crazy stuff. And this lady picks up this flat animal. It looks more like leather. It looks almost like a leather popsicle, right? Like there's the stick, this big round thing. But as you got to looking at it, you realize that is a flat rat that's been dried out. And people are standing around gnawing on it like it's a treat. Now, I'm telling you, I'm not eating that. <laughs> I'm not going to have that. But they were loving it. And God says everything you can eat. Even, so in Korea, another funny, crazy thing I saw people eat. These live octopus. Still squiggling. I guess the live blood, there's no blood in them, I don't think. I don't know how that works. But they're going to town. And I'm like, nah, not for me. You eat all the squid, all the octopus, all you want. That's not, I just, I'm not going to have it. But every animal. He doesn't qualify that. He just says every animal, as long as that life blood, he's nourishing us for life. He's enabling us to live. And then he gives protection for life. In verses 5 and 6, humans are, again, singled out from every other uh, living creature. One, we're not supposed to be eaten, right? You know, if an animal eats us, that life, the life of that animal is to be taken this is a command. It's not a proverb. It's not as if God's saying, oh, yeah, you know, this is wisdom, but, you know, it's... No, it's a command. It's, it, it, this is the way it's supposed to be. When a person's life is taken, an account is to be given. This is why I would suggest that 
the zookeeper, you remember from a few years ago, Harambe, the, the, the ape, that there was such an uproar in our, in our nation over this, this gorilla, this ape, that um, had grabbed, a, a kid had fallen into its cage, and man, we could have so many debates about how that kid ended up there, but once the kid's there, there's a responsibility. And he's he's going to kill the kid. The zookeeper was fully right to take the gorilla's life and let the kid live based on this passage. And let's just say, say let's, worst case, I, I, let, me, let me say this. I don't celebrate in the death of an animal. I'm not going to be painting blood on my face and hooting and hollering and pulling a heart and letting it pump in my hands. That's not what I'm, we're not celebrating that Harambe has to die for this kid to live. But we are celebrating that an image bearer lives. Because God has said this is precious. This is why I would affirm that the government's right of capital punishment. I don't affirm your right of capital punishment. Well, this person made me mad, so I get to take them out. Take them out. Uh, this person killed my friend, so I'm going to take justice in my own hands. I'm saying I believe the government has the right to capital punishment at the same time. At the same time as saying we shouldn't be aborting babies. Right? Now, there's a whole perspective about this in, in, in cultural circles. Well, how can you be for capital punishment and, 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 and be so against abortion? Right here. There's a liberal view, this, this extreme leftist view, and maybe not even an extreme leftist, this ideology that flips this on its head. They would seek in their understanding of things to show mercy to the one. Well, let's be humane. Let's not kill the murderer. But how many millions of babies have died in the womb? Because someone has just chosen they don't deserve to live. It, it's, not about, it's not about the political positioning. It's about the sacredness of the image bearer. As soon as we make it about a political position, then we also are not functioning within the realms of Scripture or the realms of this covenant. But this covenant gives clear application to both. This is why I think we should reject assisted suicide, euthanasia, and those kinds of things. Because God has said no one has the right to take a life. He is preserving life. And he is preserving the, the earth so that it can support life. Who are we to determine we can take it? It's just another form of idolatry. Another form of rejecting his authority. God has... has blessed mankind with this, with this multiplication, this authority, this nourishment, and this protection. These are his gifts, not just a few people, but to everyone. And we see that as he now moves to the covenant. He says, in, beginning in verse 8, Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, listen how, listen how this goes. Behold, I establish my covenant with you and the offspring after you. The birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth. Now, now, this is getting crazy now because God's not just entering into a covenant relationship with mankind, but a covenant relationship with every living creature. He's serious about this, right? There's a universal application of his promise here. Every living creature he is entering into, he is making this promise. He is binding himself in this, in this promise, in this faithful, loyal way, he is saying, I'm going to do this. It's an unconditional guarantee of his promise. And I just would point to you over and over in the verses. You can see it begin in verse 9. This is something he's going to do. Uh, 
I establish my covenant. Verse 11, we can just kind of walk through almost every verse. I again shall, uh, or I'm sorry, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall flesh be cut off. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make with you in verse 12. In verse 13, he says, I have set my bow in the cloud. And in 14, when I bring the clouds over the earth, I will remember my covenant. And how long is this? I mean, this, this, this is an unconditional guarantee of his promise that he is going to continue and he is going to do this work. And no matter how hard we try, we will not be able to, to stop him from it. He will preserve the earth and life upon the earth because he has promised to do so. We can either walk with him or stand against him, but I guarantee standing against him is not a fun place to be. Right? Let's walk in his blessing. Let's recognize the expectations he has on us, the obedience and the, and the trust that we're supposed to express to him. This unconditional, universal application of his promise. Every person enjoys this unconditional guarantee of his promise. Now listen, I told you last week, every relation, every person who has ever lived is bound in relationship to God, in covenant relationship. It started all the way back when God made these promises and, and entered into covenant with Adam. He reaffirms, he reestablishes, he reconstitutes, if you will, that covenant with all people who will ever live, even here, even in their sin, God promises. Nothing is going to keep him from arriving at the completion of the work of redemption. This is an unending promise until the end. Until the end. The earth will last as long as, the, as, as God has said it is going to last. In spite of earthquakes and other natural disasters, you know when we hear of those? You know how much fear we have to have over those? Zero. Because your God is sovereign and he reigns. In spite of the threat of war, which I think if you're listening to the news at all, I don't listen to it a ton, but I hear a little bit, I read some headlines. Because, you know, that's the healthy way to deal with the news. <laughs> Just only read the headlines. Threat of war, man, it's real. You know how much of that you have to fear? It's zero. Because God still reigns. How many of us have got caught up with chasing the balloons, trying to follow them on satellite? And I'm not saying it's wrong to know. I'm not saying that, hey, you know, that it does cause some sense of concern. Like, I don't want to go in a painful way. Like, I don't want shrapnel to take me. I, 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 I'd just as soon go in my sleep. I don't really want to experience that. But God has promised. Life will continue until the end. The earth will stand as long as it remains. As noted by Tom Schreiner, he writes, the bow in the clouds, the sign of the covenant testifies that God has withdrawn his weapons of war, that he will preserve the world until redemption is accomplished. The only thing we have to fear, the only thing we have to fear is the sovereign God who reigns over it all, who's made this promise. And as we look to him in faith, we will find his mercy and grace and not his wrath. I would call your attention to 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. It's a long passage. It's on the screen. This is now the second letter I'm writing to you, he says. 
In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of a reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, the scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. I think we're surrounded by them. They will. Where, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers f- fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. As if that's a reason to scoff. That's a fulfillment of his promise. For they deliberately overlooked the fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through the water by the word of God. And, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged. It was flooded with water and perish. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until a day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is, a, is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. In Christ, because of Christ, we have no reason to fear this promise because we have hope that after the day of judgment, that is coming. That ray of hope that just shines bright through this covenant that says judgment is coming, but I will maintain, I will keep it, I will will ensure the earth remains. I will ensure that life continues until that day. God has bound himself in covenant to Noah and his descendants and all living creatures to preserve the earth and life on the earth as long as the earth remains. An unending promise until the work of, uh, work of redemption is complete. And as long as you are in Christ, that's not a reason to be afraid either. Because he has you. Rest. Peace. All this running around, all this, all this chasing after stuff, all this trying to control, all this fear of power of others and potentially being harmed or taken advantage of falls flat on its face when we recognize our God has promised that he has us until the end. And even after the end, he has us. But if you're not in Christ, this is the best hope you have. You live in a fallen world experiencing just a taste, just a taste, a sampling of God's blessing. But you will never know the abundance. You will never know the beauty. You will never know the majesty. You will never, you will never look on your creator with your own eyes. You will never stand in the, in the presence of a true savior who died in our place for our sins and rose victorious on the third day. You will go the way of destruction. So let me plead with you again as I did last week. Turn to him. Repent and believe. He is the only way. He is the only hope. Let's pray.